Praise God. Well, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6. I think we're just about to wrap this up. You can relax. They took my sword away from me. (laughs) I had to give it back to John. I appreciate him letting me have it for as long as I did and the opportunity to wield it in here. (laughs) And... um, but we're going to get on to some other things. But before we go on to some other things, there's a verse that, that ends this entire discussion. For a number of months, really, for most of this year, we've been talking about the armor of God, which starts in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. And it tells us that we are in a spiritual battle, a spiritual warfare. If you haven't realized that yet, you are in it. If you haven't realized that you're probably losing it, probably being beaten up, that there is a spiritual enemy out there. There are some teachings out there, and there are many of them out there, and some of my favorite Christian authors also have this bent, so I have to learn. You know, you've got to learn to, to, to take what, what you know is right and the stuff that you know is not right, just kind of let it go and pick out what the good things are, like going through the produce section. You pick out the good grapefruits and the good, you know, the good tomatoes, and you leave the ones that aren't. And hopefully if we're, if we're taught well enough and learn well enough, we know how to discern what's truth from what's not truth. But there's a major, major teachings out there that basically said, teaches you that, you know, well, whatever comes along, you just have to learn to accept. And that God brings good things into our life and bad things in our life to teach us. But that totally ignores everything the Bible says about spiritual warfare. It totally ignores everything the Bible tells us about a spiritual enemy out there whose sole purpose is to stop you and to destroy you. Amen. And so we have to be aware. You've got to go what the Bible says. I'll say that to this group over here. You've got to go with what the Bible says. You know, I don't care what's what I say. You need to go say, is that what my Bible says? Because this is what God's given to us. And the Bible teaches us, we're right in this section, that we are involved in a spiritual war, a spiritual war. I mean, it's real simple. When you're in a war, there's an enemy trying to destroy you, trying to stop you. And we've gone through all the principles. We've recognized who the enemy is that's taught in here and, and uh, the different weapons, and we've seen them how ap- applied to this context of spiritual warfare. And the last thing we've talked about is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And that's what we were playing around with the sword up here for. But there's one more verse we need to cover, which kind of sums everything up. And that's verse 18, because this is part of this same discussion. New King James says, "...praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit." being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We'll stop right there for the moment. Now, if you read through that quickly, in most translations, it's a, it can be a little confusing, a little, a little overwhelming, because it's telling me to be praying all the time um, in the Spirit and being watchful for all the saints with all perseverance. But we're going to break this down, and I'm just going to trust God, because usually when I teach something, I've got a sense in here of what the message is. I have no sense of what this is tonight at all. So we're just going to start breaking this down and allow the Spirit of God to take whatever He wants to say. Otherwise, we may be out of here in just a few minutes. (laughs) Uh, Somehow I doubt that. Okay. Now, let's start breaking this down. I'm going to go, I've studied this out in the original language. It says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Now, Praying always with all prayer. All prayer, actually in the Greek language, it starts out by saying, through all prayer. And it's not, it means literally the totality of what constitutes prayer. All types of prayer. And I've heard it taught that way. It means all the types of prayer. And what it really means is the totality of what's involved in prayer. 
So that includes, you know, interceding on your knees to just talking to God while you're driving your car. So it does not say you've got to spend all your time on your knees somewhere praying or else you're not a good Christian. But somehow that's the image sometimes that's out there. You feel pressure, oh my goodness, you know, I'm going to ask this question and I suspect I know the answer. But how many of you just feel that you're not praying enough? Yeah, it's almost all of us. We always feel that way because there's always more things we could be praying for and we don't spend 24 hours a day in prayer. But I used to read this verse and feel guilty that, my goodness, if I'm not praying 24 hours a day, then I'm disobeying this verse. But it doesn't say praying 24 hours a day. The first thing it's talking about is what all that's involved in prayer, that's what we're to be doing. That does involve sometimes on your knees, praying, interceding for somebody, but it involves just talking to God. I'm rereading a book, and I, I, I hesitate to say this because I don't know if we have it in the bookstore right now. Um, but it's a, it's a, it, it was written around 1600, and it's a little simple book called Practicing the Presence of God. Any of you ever read that book? Now, there's some things he talks about in there. It, it's written about a, a, a monk in around 1600s, simply about the relationship he developed with God just by talking to him every day. And what's so powerful about it is a living testimony of a man who just learned to know who God was by just talking to him all the time. He developed a real, living, vital relationship with God without all the age that we have today. All the CDs and all the books. He just started talking to God about everything he was doing and talking to God as if God was actually there with him since I believe my Bible says he is there with you. It says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. That means he's with you when you're sleeping. He's with you when you get up in the morning. He's with you when you're in a bad mood. He's with you when you're brushing your teeth. He's with you when you're driving your car. He's with you when you're trying to fix your hair. He's with you in the shower. He's with you when you get out. He's with you when, when you know, something goes wrong. He's with, he's with you all the time, and yet we spend so little time aware of him and talking to him. And he developed this practice so that he said, and of course, he's, he's, he's in, a, in a monastery where they would get up at 4.30 in the morning for their prayer time and pray for four hours and then go to work. And so, you know, that could get a little tedious after a while. And what he discovered is his time in praying with God was no different in those assigned times of prayer as it was and as he was talking to God. Because God's the same whether you're in prayer or you're driving your car and talking to him. He's still there with you, and he wants to hear from you, and he wants to communicate with you. God is a communicating God. God's not silent up there waiting for just that golden moment when you get in just the right place, and he gets in just the right mood, and he's going to give you this sudden insight. He's waiting to talk to you all the time. A lot of times what we struggle with is we talk to him, but we don't listen to him. Sunday we'll be married 45 years. One of the things I've learned or am still learning is that communication requires both talking and listening. Now, I'm male. I am. I am a trained lawyer and I'm a preacher. Therefore, my natural tendency is to talk. It's not my natural tendency to Listen, but I discovered one day 
that I only talk out of things I already know about, and what I know about got me where I am. So I don't really need to hear more from me (laughs) as much as I like to. Where I'm really going to grow is if I hear from her in order to find out where she is and what's important to her, or more importantly in the context we're talking about, to hear from God. Because not only does God already know what I know, I mean, think about that. He knows what you know already. When you're talking to him, he's not saying, oh my goodness, I never heard that before. (laughs) Nobody ever said that to me before. My goodness, let me go write that down. What an astounding revelation I just heard from you today. No, he knows it all, all the time. But he's a loving father. He gets so excited when you discover something he already knew. Just like with your children when they're growing up. You get so excited when they discover something that you already, you already know. But because you love them and you're excited to see them grow, you're excited for them discovering something. So God wants to hear from us. He wants to listen to you. But we need to learn to listen to Him. So all manner of prayer means all that's involved in praying. From the time you get up to the time you go to bed, even in the middle of the night, I'll get up in the night and I'll just say something to Him. Just to acknowledge his presence. And the more you acknowledge his presence, the more you talk to him as if he's there, the more you become aware of his presence, have confidence in his presence, and the more in the closer relationship you develop with him. Then when you have a need or someone else has a need and you go to him about it, you're going to him out of a relationship that you develop with him, not out of an obligation and a performance of something to do so that God's going to do so you can feel good about yourself because you prayed for that person. I had to catch myself the other day. I was praying for somebody, not here, but somebody in a need, and I got to the end and I realized the reason I did that is so I'd feel good about myself. And I had to repent. Because I didn't do it, first of all, out of love for them or really out of a co- compassion to see the prayers. I did it so I could take the pressure off of me and feel better about me. Now, I know I'm the only person that's ever done that, so you can look at me strange. We better move along. This is getting too close here. All right. Praying with all manner, all types of prayer and supplication. That word just means asking, pleading. It's asking for something. The Bible says in James, you have not because you ask not. Now it says in the King James, New King James says, praying always. Some translations say at all times. The word times there is a Greek word, kairos, which doesn't mean time. There's another word, chronos, which means the time that's on your clock. Like, you know, it's how long, how much time have we spent at this? This word means an appointed time for a specific event. So what this is talking about is, is being ready to pray in whatever situation you find yourself in. So always isn't all the time, it's in all the situations that you run across. So it's being ready and prepared to pray in every situation at any moment of time that you run into. So it's not saying you've got to be on your knees praying for 24 hours a day. It's being ready in season and out, as Timothy Paul says to Timothy, to, to communicate with him about situations. And that's really what he's talking about here. Okay. Um, praying always at all times with all prayer, all manner of prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Now that really, that gets some discussion going. All right, let's talk about this term 
in the Spirit. You'll see it referred to in a number of different contexts. But in the context of prayer, let's, you may want to keep something here because we'll come back. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Now there's people that teach, and where I went to school I was taught that praying in the Spirit automatically means praying in tongues. And I'll show you that it, it includes that, but it's not limited to that. It's broader than that. Romans chapter 8. Now, let's go to verse 26. And I'm going to, this is Bible study, so I'll take the time to teach you ways to study your Bible and, and how I get some of the things that I get. I just pay attention to little words. The first word in the New King James in verse 28 is likewise. That's a significant word. So instead of just reading over it, let's think for a moment about what likewise means. Likewise is preparing us that what he's about to say is in the same vein or similar to what he's just said. Are you all with me? Okay. In the same way or in the same manner would be another way of saying the same thing. That means that this verse, we can get some insight as to what the Spirit of God means here by what He's already talked about. Because this is going to be the same type of thing, maybe in a different direction, of what He's already talked about. So let's spend a moment and look or talk about what's going on in verses 1 through verse 25. And I won't take the time to read through all of this. It's probably the most powerful chapter in the Bible. I've shared before. If I've only got to have one chapter out of a Bible to have with me on a, on a deserted island, this is the one I want. In fact, I've got it pretty much memorized so if I don't even have to have a Bible with me. Because it really does contain the essence of the gospel in here. And let's do, well, we'll start at the beginning. There is therefore now no condemnations for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now the New King James says, "...who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." In most, trans, most original ver, versions of this, that's not in there. Uh, but, but I can explain to you later what that's talking about. But look at this. What I want to get to is this. So there's no condemnation. If you're in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. That's an answer to what was said at the end of chapter 7, because he's asking this question over wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's talking about being condemned under the law, and now he says, who's going to be deliver me from this? Verse 1 of chapter 8 says, well, there's there no condemn, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're in Christ Jesus, that means there's no condemnation before God. That doesn't mean you can't sin and get in trouble and have to repent of it. But God's not condemning you. Okay. Why? Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free or set me free from the law of sin and death. He's comparing here the old law of the Old Testament, which is the way you made yourself right in God's eyes. The way you avoided being condemned in God's eyes was to perfectly keep every provision of the law. 
So it relied upon how strong you were, how faithful you were, and how how determined you were, and how well you performed that law. And you could be very good at it all day long today and blow it first thing tomorrow, and you blew the whole thing. It totally depended on your being righteous before God according to His standard of righteousness, not your neighbor's or your parents' or yours. And of course, none of us can keep that. And so the law, of this, the law of sin and death was the law that once you sinned once, you died. Not physically, spiritually got, were separated from God. But notice he says the law of the spirit of life. The law here refers to the method by which we're made righteous in God's eyes. So the method by which we're made righteous in God's eyes that comes by the spirit has set us free from the method of being made righteous in God's eyes that came by the law because we couldn't keep it. So what he's talking about here is the Spirit of God has done something for us that we were incapable of doing ourselves. That's what he's talking about here. Go on. Verse 3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh... Because of the weakness of our flesh, the law could not make us righteous. Not because it wasn't righteous, because it relied on our flesh to keep it, and therefore because our flesh is weak, we could not live up to the law, so the law was incapable of making us righteous. But what the law could not do because of the weakness of our flesh, God did. Not will do when you get to heaven, He did it by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, He condemned, I'll read it this way, He condemned my sin in His flesh. That's why there is therefore now no condemnation, because I've already been condemned for my sin, but it wasn't condemned in me, it was condemned in Him, because He took my sin and put it in Him, and He... Put bore the punishment and condemnation for my sin on his son so I don't have to bear it. It's not paid for twice. If you come out of the grocery store and realize you paid for those tomatoes twice, you're going to go back and want your money back. I already paid for it once. I don't want to pay for it again. Why are we paying Why are we paying for what he already paid for? Why are we trying to make ourselves righteous in his eyes when he's already paid to make you accepted in the beloved? Why are we working so hard to be accepted by him when he's already paid the price so that we can be accepted by him? Why are we paying it twice? Now, it's one thing to want to please him. It's one thing to want to obey him, but not to be accepted by him. So the point here is this. What the law could not do for us because of our own weakness, our own inability to keep it, our own inability to produce righteousness on ourselves, what the law could not do because of that, God did by the Spirit. So what the Spirit did when He came into us, when the Spirit of God came into us in Romans 8.2, The Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the Spirit of God, when He breathed Him into you, when you called upon Christ, He breathed into you the life of God that made you alive to God, that did for you what you could not do for yourself by your own efforts because of the weakness of your flesh. 
So the whole point of the first half of this chapter is talking about what the Spirit did for us that we could not do for ourselves because of our own weaknesses and inabilities. Are you with me now? Now let's go back to verse 26. That's what likewise is referring to. So in the same way that the Spirit helped us to be made right in God's eyes where we couldn't do that because of our own ability, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, that's our inability, for we don't know what we should pray as we ought. So now he's changing the subject. Instead of being righteous, he's now changing the subject to prayer, but it's the same idea. In the same way the Spirit helped us to, to become right in God's eyes by putting, lifting us up and doing for us in the spirit realm what we could not do by the effort of our flesh, he did for us. In the same way when it comes to prayer, he also helps us because of the weakness and inability of our flesh. All right? Have any of you ever felt inadequate in prayer? God knows that you are. You don't have to be afraid for Him to find out. He knows you're inadequate in prayer, so He's made provision for you to pray. Now, what is it we're inadequate about when it comes to prayer? Because literally what this says in the Greek, for we don't know the what to pray. For we don't know the what to pray. You know, we, we just need to get honest with God and ourselves. Well, let me put it this way. I'll get, let me get honest with God, which I've already done about this, and with you. Many situations come to me for prayer, as they do to the other staff ministers. And in many of them, I'll get in here to pray, and I don't know what to pray. So what happens is we pray rote prayers what we've learned from other people to pray. We take scriptures and throw scriptures at the situation. In many cases, we don't know what to pray. But we're either trying to impress God with our prayers or make ourselves feel better because we prayed about it, and it's not effective. Why? Where's the problem? Because we're, we're talking about spiritual warfare. W- what are we learning? Where's the enemy? Because we talked about this. When we talked about the, the, the Word of God is the sword of the what? The sword of the what? And See, I took my sword away from me. I can't preach now. We ta- learned that when, the, when you speak the Word, that's putting a sword in the Spirit's hands because the enemy we're fighting against is in the spirit realm. Remember, we wrestle not with flesh and blood but with principalities and powers and spiritual forces in heavenly... spiritual forces in the heavenlies. That's the spiritual atmosphere around here. So the warfare we're fighting is against spiritual enemies. And we've talked before, so much of the time we've not been making any progress is we're trying to fight spiritual enemies with carnal weapons. And here's an example of the same thing. The inability we have, the weakness when we have when it comes to prayer, is we're dealing with issues in a spirit realm we can't see into. 
We don't know what's going on. Have you ever noticed that there are some situations where Jesus prayed for somebody and He cast demons out of them? And He may pray for the same infirmity with somebody else, spit on the ground, put clay on their eye, and go tell them to wash it off. He may pray for somebody else with the same malady and lay hands on them. And what, yet, if this person came to us, they look like they got the same thing wrong with all three of them, but he prayed differently in each case. Why? Because Jesus knew something we didn't know. He knew that he needed discernment about what the nature of the spiritual source of the problem was. This is good stuff. I'm learning right along with you. <laughs> but we just launch into it. Either we go into prayer, shut up, shandai, 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 or we just start throwing scriptures at it without finding out from God what the problem is. We're too quick to pray about Now, some things are emergencies, and you don't have a choice to spend two weeks discerning. But God's not going to wait for two weeks to show you if you really rely on Him in faith. It's okay to admit you don't know. He knows you don't know. You know what? You want to take your relationship with God to another level? Just get honest with Him. Just get real and honest with Him about where you are and what's going on. He already knows. But when you get honest about it, that's called humbling yourself. You open a door for Him to have entrance in now. All He wants to do is help you. He's not going to condemn you. We just read that. He's not going to judge you. He's not going to... James chapter 1 says, When you lack wisdom, ask of God who will not upbraid you. And He's not going to laugh at you and say, Oh my goodness, you don't know that by now. He's not going to criticize you. He wants to help you. And he says he'll give to you abundantly whatever you ask, in terms, especially in terms of wisdom and discernment. But you've got to ask in faith, nothing doubting. Just get honest with him. I don't know the answer. Show me. That's all he's waiting to do. Instead of thinking somehow we've got to present an image to him, we have it all together. He knows you don't have it all together. He just wants you to be honest so He can help you. Face where you are, because that's where He's a God of truth. He only deals in truth. He doesn't deal with where you think you are. He doesn't deal with where you want to be. He deals with meet you where you are. And He accepts you where you are, loves you where you are, and wants to lift you up from where you are. And He has given His Spirit to you to help you to do that. But when we're trying to do it ourselves, He just got to sit there like the angels the other day we talked about, just waiting for you to call on Him and ask Him and look for help. So the nature of the weakness here in verse 26 is we don't know what the... We don't know the what. We don't know the need. We don't know the nature of the problem in a realm we can't see into with our senses. So we need help in that realm. The second thing about this is, is we don't know God's will in that situation. We think we do. But we don't always know God's will in a situation. Now when it comes to praying for you and for your needs, 
If you find something in the Word of God, it's yours. Claim it. Believe it. Confess it. Declare it. Grab hold of it. But when you're praying for somebody else in their situation, you're stepping into a relationship between them and God and their own relationship about that. And you can pray for them, but what they, where they are with God in that is going to have more of a bearing than what you pray. Amen. You may be praying for somebody for something they don't want. Well, let's just stop there a second and talk about this. It's one of my pet peeves. Sometimes people are praying for something and they think they're asking God for something and their words are. But in their heart, they're looking for something else. Let me give you a classic example. There are some people praying for healing and deliverance and yet down inside they want to stay where they are because they're getting attention, pity, people helping them with things. I'll be just as honest and transparent as I can. There have been times in my life when I was maybe had physical symptoms in my body and I've been tired, I was looking for a break and I'm quoting healing scriptures and asking God to heal me But if I had to get really honest, down inside I wanted to get sick for a couple days. Oh, don't look at me as if you've never had that thought. Because then I could stay home, stay in bed, and everybody feel sorry for me. My wife might bring me some coffee or something like that, and I could just take a couple days. I don't want something really bad. Just enough so I can stay home from work for a few days and feel good about it, get a lot of attention, get over it and get back. And yet outwardly I'm asking God to heal me, quoting scriptures. Now, not something that I was even that dramatically conscious of until I began to look inside of me and realize, John, let's talk honestly with yourself here. You're really looking for a couple of days to just stay in bed. So God's not going to hear that. What he hears is a desire of your heart. So my point is, you can have one desire of your heart and another desire of your mind. Now, if that's true about you, it can be true about people you're praying for. And God will not violate their will. He'll influence it, pull at it, but he will not cross that line because if he'd do that, he'd save everybody and he'd make everybody get saved. But he can't do that. So we need the discernment of what to pray or whether to pray at all. There may be situations God doesn't even want you to pray for. That's his business, isn't it? Because we're praying to help him, aren't we? Oh, there's a revolutionary thought. I thought we were trying to get God to answer my prayer to help me in what I wanted. No, the Bible teaches us he needs us to pray so that it's his will that's done. And his, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, what was it he told them? Pray in this manner. 
Our Father who art in heaven, Thy, Your kingdom come. Your will be done. He didn't say anything about His will. He said, pray in this manner. Not necessarily these words. So the focus of our prayer, especially for others, ought to be God's will being done in their life. Not our will, parents. They're God's, not yours. God's entrusted them to you, but they belong to Him. He has a purpose and will for their lives, and He needs you to help Him prepare them to carry it out, and then let them go to Him to do it. So your prayer should be for His will to be done in their lives, not to get Him to carry out your will for their lives. And that's not just for children. It can be children for parents. It can be husbands for wives and wives for husbands. And it's amazing when you start praying God's will for a situation, how much faster you get an answer. Because you're not trying to talk God into doing something that He's not ready to do. Because I learned this a long time ago. He can hold his breath a lot longer than I can. (laughs) If it's a showdown between God's stubbornness and mine, as stubborn as I can be, it's no contest. And so it's learning to flow with His will And it's amazing what he's able to do. I don't know how we got off in that. Okay. Oh, yeah. In the Spirit. What's this talking about in the Spirit? Well, so what goes on to say, likewise. That's what the likewise is referring to. The Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not literally know, literally, we do not know the what to pray, as we ought. Now, the word help here is a Greek word that has three different pieces to it. And when you combine them together, what it literally means is to take hold together with you against something. Remember we're talking about, especially in this context, praying as part of spiritual warfare. So we're fighting against something or we're, we're, we're pressing against something and we don't even know what it is. So this word help means that the Spirit will take hold together. The, 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 the t- word together comes from a word that means shared. So to take hold together with you means you're already doing something and he's going to come alongside you and help you do it. What that does not mean is he'll do it for you. It does not mean that he will do it for you. And so... It means to take hold together with you, and then the prefix on there is anti-anti against something. It's kind of like this. Suppose you've driving down, driving home tonight, and you knew on the way in here, because there was just this sense in here as you went past that last gas station that you ought to pull in, because the needle's getting awful close to that E, the warning lights on. And you say, bow, but I can, I can make it home. And, and, and you get here, you get out of here tonight, and you go past that gas station, it's closed. And the car goes, and you coast over to the side of the road, and you can, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a pull-off about 
100 feet ahead of you, and the car's partly in the, in the in, and you get out, and you're going to now push the car. And it's just, it's not going anywhere. And somebody pulls over behind you and gets out and says, let me take hold together with you against that. And they begin to share the load with you. And when they come in to push together with you, now the strength is there and the ability is there to do something you didn't have before. That's what that word means in prayer. It doesn't mean you go sit in the car and he pushes it. Now, here's, here's where I have an issue, and I've got to be careful about this. When it comes to believing that praying in the Spirit, especially when it comes to intercession, simply means praying in tongues, I can pray in tongues and be doing all kinds of other things, and I'm not involved in it at all. There's no faith in it. I'm just speaking in tongues. There's a difference, I believe, between speaking in tongues and praying in tongues. And because I believe that in order to be praying, I've got to be engaged in a process that he's helping me with and not watching TV or doing some puzzle and speaking in tongues and letting him do it all for me. My point is this. I don't know the exact answer, but it, to me it tells me I've got to be involved somehow from my heart in it. Not just a spectator while he's doing all the work for me. And so that's what that word means. To take hold together with you against something in the spirit realm that you can't do yourself because you don't know what it is and you don't have the power to deal with it. Because remember, it's the sword of the Spirit that's a defensive weapon in that territory. So let's go on. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities or weaknesses, for we don't know the what we should pray as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us. Now, the word uh, for us means uh, uh, together with... Let's see. Well, some translations admit for us. It means with us. With groanings that cannot be uttered. In the original language, this is not very clear. Again, some people take this and teach this, that that's what groaning in the Spirit is. And I believe there's a basis for that because earlier in this chapter he talks about the inability, he talks about the groanings that we have living in this flesh. Does your flesh ever give you trouble? I mean, does it ever not want to do something it should do? Or want to do something you shouldn't do? Like the next time you open your freezer before you go to bed and there's that ice cream in there and it starts talking to your flesh. It doesn't talk to your spirit. It's talking to your flesh. Oh, you deserve a break today. (laughs) <laughs> you've had a tough day. And so you've got to wrestle with that. And so, so um, uh, in, earlier in this chapter, it talks about, say, we're, you know, we're joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with Him. It goes on to explain the suffering is dealing with this flesh and this world we're in because this world is groaning under the curse of the, under the curse that was released when Adam sinned. When Adam, when God created this earth, created the garden even, put the man in it, he gave him an assignment. The assignment was he was to tend it, 
to protect it, to cause it to multiply and to grow. He was responsible for it. But all of the creation that God created worked together with him to help him do it. He didn't have to water anything because it said a mist rose up in the morning and settled down on it. There were no weeds that he had to pull out. Everything was birthed by God's Word along a certain direction and all he had to do was just kind of flow with it and manage it. But once he sinned and that curse was released into this realm, it now fought him and God says it's going to fight you. Now you're going to have to labor and work with this ground. You still have the same responsibility. See, when God gives you a responsibility, He doesn't take it back just because you blow it. Even if you say no, He doesn't take the responsibility back. There are going to be many people that are going to stand before God and give an account for something they rejected. They're going to have to account for what they were supposed to do with something they said no to or just hardened their heart and didn't do, he's still going to hold us responsible for it because he doesn't change his mind about it. So now that he sinned, this was going to be a whole lot harder. God didn't say, well, that's too hard for you. We're going to do something else. So, but the point is, it still, it fought him. It was now work against him. Well, we're still dealing with that now. Nature's fighting us. Nature's not making this job easier. Nature's, just, all you got to do is have a yard. (laughs) Or a house. I remember the first house we got. Oh, we have our own house. I discovered when the first pipe broke, I didn't have a landlord I could call. I now had to go find a plumber myself. And I found out that that house was work. Then I bought a boat. (laughs) Then I found out what it was. My point is this. Things that are are in our lives also require work. They require repairs. Then there's this suit we live in, (laughs) this body. The point is this. There's a groaning that comes with that. And so here he's talking about a groaning in prayer, which is overcoming this weakness. It may be a spiritual groaning in the spirit realm. It may mean that. I'm just saying in the original language, it's not clear cut one way or the other. So I don't have an issue with people, whatever they believe about that. But the point is there's opposition and the Spirit takes hold together with us. Now look at the rest, rest of this, the next verse. Verse 27. Now he who searches the hearts, that's the Father, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So what's happening is when you're praying and you're praying in the Spirit, The Spirit of God is taking your prayer and converting it into the will of God and God looking into the heart of the Spirit to see what that is. It's a perfect communication system. The other side of that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which says when God wants to reveal something to you, that's the verse you hear me quote so often, eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor is it entered into the hearts of men, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. So there's things God's prepared for us that are in the spirit realm we've never seen, God wants us to know about. This is God communicating with us. How are we going to know those? He says, because those things are revealed to us by the Spirit. So the Spirit, part of His responsibility is to reveal to us things in that spirit realm that God has for us and also to communicate back to God what's in our heart to pray, convert it into the will of God so that God looks into the Spirit and sees His heart, knows what His mind is perfectly because it's spirit to spirit and therefore the Spirit's able to pray back for us the will of God to Him. 
You following me with that? Okay. That's what in the Spirit's referring to here. It may involve tongues. Now go with me to 1 Corinthians 14, and I'll show you where it can involve tongues. I believe it does involve tongues, but I believe it's broader than that. 1 Corinthians 14, we'll start in verse 1. Receive one who is weak in faith, but not over disputes of doubtful things. I'm um, in Romans 14. That's why it didn't make sense. 1 Corinthians. Good stuff, but wrong weakness. Pusulo, he's talking about spiritual gifts here. And desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him, however, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. Remember, the spirit is the spirit realm. Let me show you that. You keep something there because we're not finished here. In Exodus, oh, I left the notes in there. Exodus 37, we've already studied that on Sundays about, about uh, don't turn there, about the valley of the dry bones. But it's Ezekiel, thank you. It begins with an E-A. <laughs> uh, um, he says, I was taken in the spirit to this valley. He wasn't physically picked up and brought out to a valley. He got into the spirit. And when the spirit means you're more conscious with your, your man and ear of the spirit realm than you are of the natural realm around you. Let me make that, bring that down to kind of where we live. Ever, ever do this in prayer? Or I may be the only one. Or you've decided you're going to spend, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes in prayer, whatever it is, you know, and you go praying, you know, Lord, thank you, I love you, thank you, Jesus, ba 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 shamak, you know, you start praying in the tongue, you're back and forth, you know, and you've been praying for what you think has got to be 20 minutes. And you look at your watch and it's five. And you go, oh, it's another five minutes. You ever do that? You're not in the spirit. <laughs> you're in your mind. But when you get praying or reading your Bible and you suddenly realize, I have no idea what time it is, and you can get to the point, I don't even know where I am. What happened is you become so conscious, you're a spirit being. And we've studied that before in the beginning of the study. You are a spirit being. You have a soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions. And they live in a body. Three parts to you. One part is from of the spirit realm where God lives. That's your spirit man. The physical body is of this natural realm, and your soul is a bridge between the two. It's what allows the two to communicate with each other. So when you're in the spirit, it's because you are, your spirit man is so activated and alive that you're more conscious of the spirit man in here and this spirit being's communication with the spirit realm than you are the natural realm that's around you. Unfortunately, very few of us get there very often because we don't spend much time in it. The more time you spend in prayer communing with God, the more you will learn to flow in the Spirit and the quicker you can get into it. The less time you do, the harder it is and the, the, less, you know, the more seldom it is that you'll get into the Spirit. But so, so when Ezekiel said, I was in the Spirit, what he's talking about is not he was physically transported there, but he was seeing something in here, a vision in here. All right, Revelation chapter 1. John, John, on the Isle of Patmos, having this powerful revelation, says this a number of times. Revelation 1, verse 10. 
For I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a voice. And then he sees Jesus. He has this vision of Jesus. So he was on the Lord's day, he was in prayer, and he got into the Spirit. And so in the Spirit, he's more conscious of what's in the Spirit realm than he is the natural realm around you. Over chapter 4, just these are basically saying the same thing. Verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one set on the throne. Again, in Revelation 17.3 and then 21.10, he says the same thing, I was in the Spirit. So my point here is in the Spirit, that reference to in the Spirit refers to being in touch with the Spirit realm through your Spirit being. Your mind can't get in touch with the Spirit. Your mind can be in contact with what's coming out of your Spirit. So there's a Spirit realm, and that, isn't that where the warfare is we're talking about? So in the Spirit, praying in the Spirit means praying in, in connection with and in communion with the Spirit of God in that realm. That's why it's a broader than just praying in tongues. But praying in tongues is one great way to get there. Because this verse in 1 Corinthians 14 says that when you're praying in, in tongues, you're, you're communing directly with God. And you're not communing out of your mind. Let's go over to verse 14. 1 Corinthians 4, 14. 14. 1 Corinthians 14, 14. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. In other words, your mind has no clue what you're talking to God about. So verse 2 says, when I'm praying in the tongues, when I'm praying in the spirit, uh, my spirit's talking to God. Verse 14 says, and my mind has no clue. That's why it doesn't like it. Your mind will give you fits when you start praying in the Spirit until you're used to it. When I first started doing my mind would, would laugh at me, say, you're just, that's baby talk, that's just gibberish. Finally, I realized it's jealous. My mind likes to know everything that's going on, likes to be in control. And when you're communicating with God and your mind has no idea what you're saying, it doesn't like that. But you know, there are times your mind needs to have no idea what you're talking to God about. There's times you need to get around your mind, especially in a crisis or when you're anxious about something. That's why you need to pray in the Spirit, and by that I mean in tongues, a lot. Because it, it, it gets you in touch with the part of you that you really are, that spirit being. I'll do it all the time. I'll do it, I'll do it walking around. I don't do it out loud. I mean, just do it under my breath. I'll pray in the Spirit. I'll be pray- I may be in a meeting and I'm praying in the Spirit. In the car, I may be in the shower. I'm just communing with God in the Spirit realm, keeping my spirit sensitive, keeping myself sensitive to my spirit. Yeah. And so here we see in verse 14 it says, So if I pray in, my, in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What's the conclusion then? I'll pray with the Spirit, but also I'll pray with my understanding. So there's a time to pray with your understanding. There's a time to pray with your spirit, in the Spirit, in tongues. I will sing with the Spirit. I'll also sing with understanding. I'll sing in the Spirit. I'll get singing in the Spirit, especially if I'm in worship. I'll just go start singing in the Spirit. He doesn't care whether I'm on key or not. (laughs) All right. Okay. All right. Let's go back to Ephesians. You know, I don't want to... We could spend weeks teaching on any of these subjects. Ephesians 6. Praying in all situations, 
with all the scope of all the manner of prayer and, and, and pleading in the Spirit, being watchful. That word just means being alert, watching what's going on. When 9-11 happened, one of the things they kept telling us is we need to be, you know, the best safety thing we can have is for all of us to be alert, just to watch anything that looks strange. And, and, and we need to do that in the Spirit. Be, be, be alert, spiritually alert, spiritually sensitive to what's going on. Most Christians are just spiritually insensitive. They have no clue about the spiritual nature of what's going on at all. That's because they spend very little time aware of the Spirit, very little time communing in the Spirit, very little time praying in the Spirit, which means we're trying to deal with spiritual things with our feeble mind. And that doesn't work very well because our minds cannot understand the things of the Spirit. It says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the carnal mind doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. And so we need to... It doesn't mean we get spooky. God's not spooky. It just means we need to learn to be circumspect, be, be alert, be aware. Okay. Praying always with all manner of prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful, being aware to this end or this purpose with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Notice, being watchful to this end. This is still part of the discussion of spiritual warfare. We've talked about the different things to put on, which is to put on God's character, His nature, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, renewing our mind to think the way God thinks, and then speaking the Word of God. Those are all things we put on or things that we do. But it's all summed up. The way we do this and the way we activate it is through prayer. So this is still part of our spiritual warfare. So we activate this armor. We use this armor by communing with God about these situations or praying against the situation in the spirit realm. We'll learn at some point, because I'm sure God will get us into it at some point, the authority that we have as a believer. Most Christians have no clue the authority that we've been given as a believer. Or we're out there, you know, screaming the name of Jesus, jumping up and down, and doing things that aren't working. But the authority of the believer is very real. It's very scriptural. But there's a right way to do it, and there's a right purpose for doing it. And part of it is in prayer, exercising that authority in prayer with the Spirit helping you to carry it out. So it's with this end of spiritually... And notice, the the goal of all of this was to stand. Remember we talked about that before? It's not to kill the devil. You're not going to kill the devil. But this purpose, the whole goal of this is... it's It's in verse 13. Therefore, taking up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand or withstand in the evil day. So when the enemy comes to destroy you, to knock you off track, to pull you back, to stop you from doing God's will, to not be distracted, not to be pulled away, not to be stopped because he comes against you to do that. I'm going to show you that and prove you that. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 19. Paul says, For me... That utterance. So he's, this is a continuance for our prayer because he's just said, look, and being watchful to this end 
with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, or concerning, literally it says, about or concerning all the saints, and for me also. What? That utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So he's saying, I want you to pray for all the saints so that the weapons of Satan, to distract them, to destroy them, to stop them, to threaten them, to intimidate them, would not stop them. I want you to pray for them and for me also that it wouldn't stop me from being bold to speak what I need to speak. But most of the time when we're asking God to do something for us, it's to get us out of it. Go, just Well, Paul did that at one point. Lord, he said, there's a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me. Take it away. God says, my grace is sufficient. Now, the messenger didn't come from God. It was Satan to oppose the word of God. And God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. He didn't say no. He said, I'll get you. It's not going to stop you from doing what I called you to do. See, that's the whole goal here. See, we're so concentrated on what's happening to us. What am I going through? Instead of what's God want me to do? What's my call from God? And I don't want the enemy, because the enemy's coming against you to keep the word of God down, to keep you from doing what you're called to do. He hates the word of God in you because he knows what that word can do. So he wants to intimidate you through people, spirits through people, to be quiet, to be timid, to sit down, to, be, to withdraw, to just think nothing of yourself. So the whole point is here. Yes, God will deliver you. Yes, God will heal you. But the goal of this is so that Satan doesn't stop you from doing what God's called you to do. That's the ultimate focus here. And where we need to mature is to, begin to, is to set that as our goal instead of just getting out of what I'm going through. Joseph, we'll end with this. Joseph in the Old Testament, sold into slavery by his brothers. I mean, they had to vote not to kill him because the majority wanted to kill him. His oldest brother convinced them not to kill him, but they decided to make some money off of this deal, so they sell him into slavery. And I'm not going to go through the little story. He went from bad to worse. He went from being sold by his brothers into slavery, resisting his employer's wife's advances, She lies about him, and he ends up in prison for years. At one point, he sees a hope to get out, because the Pharaoh's, oh my goodness, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker are thrown into jail with him. He sees, he he shares a vision with them that's going to help him get out, but they forget about him. He's in another couple of years. And when he gets out, God prays him in a position as the prime minister to oversee the famine that Egypt's going to go through. And then God brings his brothers to him to appear before him. And instead of being angry, instead of getting back at them, when they finally realize who he is and they're scared because they realize a normal person's going to get mad and get back at them, he recognized that God had led him to the position where he was through all that he went through so that God could use him to deliver and provide for his people.
You don't hear that taught very often. But God took him through a whole bunch of difficult situations to put him in a position to prepare him so that he could deliver the people that God loves so much. But then God put his own son through the same kind of thing to deliver you and me. See, serving him may mean we've got to go through some things with opposition, that there's an opponent out there that hates you, not personally. He hates the God that you love. He hates the people that God wants to rescue through you and me. So he wants to stop us. And that's what the spiritual warfare is all about. Not about you. It's about stopping you. And Paul became so determined, so determined, that no matter what came against him, it wouldn't stop him. And that's the whole goal here. Having done all to stand, stand. And at the end, Paul says, and as you're praying for your brethren so that they won't fail, pray for me also. So that I will have boldness to do what I'm called to do in what it is that I'm facing right now. Praying at all times with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit.